Welcome to Soul Food, a podcast ministry of Calvary Chapel, Princeton, West Virginia. Good to see everybody. If you would turn in, in your Bibles or turn on your Bibles or however you read along with us or look at the, the uh, screens and uh, turn to Ephesians chapter 4. We're looking at verses 1 through 6 this morning, and let's stand for the reading of the word. I, therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called, with all lowliness and gentleness, with long suffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called in the hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. Our Lord and our God, just so thankful to be able to come to you this morning to come before your throne of grace with, with our needs and petitions and just to call upon your name, Lord, and know that you hear us. Such a great privilege, Lord, that we can, we can address the creator of the universe, the mighty God, the only God, with the full assurance that you hear us and that you, you answer our prayers, Lord. We just thank you for bringing us together this morning. We thank you for your word. And I pray, Lord, for your your guidance, your your anointing this morning as I bring the word forth. I can do nothing without you, Lord. I can talk a whole lot, but I can't say anything that would make any difference in anybody's life for, for eternity, Lord, without you, without your spirit, Lord. So I just pray, Lord, that you would quicken your word this morning in our hearts. Let it become part of us. Let it equip us for your service. And... Just bind us together in your love, in the unity of the Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. And you may be seated. Continuing the study in uh, the book of Ephesians. and <clears throat> I do desire your prayers this morning as uh, we go through the Word. Um, I didn't have a whole lot of preparation time this morning, so I'm probably going to be fairly brief which will probably also be good news to a lot of you. So that's, uh, <clears throat> I've uh, sometimes have a, a problem with writing things uh, short enough. You know, It takes a lot of time to write things shorter sometimes than it does to, to write them longer. But uh, I, I do desire your prayers as I bring the word. And, you know, I have... Two great concerns as I stand before you. The first is, well, let me say it this way. Speaking in public doesn't bother me. I know a lot of people don't like to get up and talk in front of people. I've been doing this since sometime in the late 70s, and so it doesn't bother me. What bothers me is what I might say because... You know, it is of utmost concern to me that I say 
what is the accurate truth of the Word of God. That I don't say anything that is false or wrong, you know, in bringing my message to you. That is my biggest concern. My second concern is that I don't say anything at all. I mean, people can talk a lot and not say anything. I don't want to waste your time <laughs> effectively by me standing up here talking and not really saying anything. So with that in mind, you know, that is why I desire your prayers, you know, that I will tell you what is accurate with the Word of God and that I will actually say something. And with the anointing of the Holy Spirit, say something that will make a difference in your life and make a difference for eternity. Now, I began each uh, session in the uh, study of Ephesians with a quote from uh, a man named uh, uh, John McKay, who was uh, a Scotsman and was president of the Princeton Theological Seminary back in the early, I think it was the early 1900s anyway, he called uh, the book of Ephesians doctrine set to music and I really like that description in the first um, three chapters of uh, Ephesians and true to Paul's form through most of his letters you know he he talks doctrine to begin with and then he goes into practical a practical application of the doctrine that he has talked about, and that's that's where we're going today. Uh, he he begins by saying, "I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called." He has spent three chapters telling us in in great detail what God has done for us, what He has done for us freely by His grace. It he calls it a mystery because it is something that nobody has comprehended until now or until then right it is at the time of uh, of his writing or the time of his preaching and a mystery of course is not like uh, something uh, that we need to solve he's talking about something that we cannot possibly understand unless God reveals it to us this is why he calls it a, a mystery. And he tells us how God, through his grace and through his mercy, from the, a plan that he had from the beginning or from before the foundation of the world, had purpose to bring together as one people, both Jew and Gentile, as one people unto himself, the people of God. And now... He's going to talk to us about how we are to live out this purpose of God. Now, he, he calls himself the prisoner of the Lord. Paul is, at the time of this writing, a prisoner. He's in prison in Rome uh, where he spent approximately, as far as historians can tell, approximately two years under house arrest. He sees himself as a a prisoner for the Lord because it is for his work and for his purpose that he is there. But he also sees himself as a prisoner because he is a voluntary prisoner of the Lord in that he is in his service completely as a, as a servant. Then he says, I beseech you to walk worthy 
of the calling with which you were called. Now, that's a a pretty big uh, pretty big uh, statement, isn't it? You know, something you know it's not not always easy for us to do, but when we really understand what God wants us to or what God did for us, then we are by nature going to want to walk worthy and walk pleasing in his sight. And we don't know how to do that unless we know his word, unless we know what he expects of us, unless he knows what he wants of us. And the thing that Paul is going to lay out in these these verses is the first thing, one of the first things that that the Lord wants from his people is unity. And unfortunately, it's one of the things that we are so so lacking in the Christian church these days. We are so prone to emphasize our differences than we are to emphasize our uh, similarities. And the similarity is basically our common faith in our one Lord and one God. But when, when we stop and think about what God has done for us, I think it helps bring into perspective how we are supposed to walk. Now, you know, we have a, a tendency, I think, particularly in this country, to want to uh, impose our, our Christian values upon the world at large which really isn't a bad thing, you know. Certainly, if the if the world at large, even non-believers, you know, would would uh, behave according to the word of God, it would be good for all. But Paul doesn't um, emphasize this at all. In fact, he said he doesn't judge the world; he only judges the believers, the church. We are the ones who are supposed to walk according to the, the ways of the Lord. And the world is going to walk according to the ways of the world. I heard a, a pastor friend of mine one time say that uh, this is not an accurate analogy, but, but it, it, it works. He said, before we take them to the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, we need to take them to the tree of life. In other words, you know, a person needs to be born again before we expect them to follow the way that the Lord wants us to walk. But, you know, we love him because he first loved us. If he hadn't loved us, we couldn't love him. In our natural state, it's impossible for us to love him. And understanding the relationship that we have, that he loved us first, is the foundation of our worthy walk. Luther um, counseled people when they were under temptation just simply to say, I am a Christian. You know, tell the devil if he tempts you, you know, I am a Christian. And as such, I am going to walk like a Christian. Now we don't walk worthy of the Lord so that he will love us. We walk worthy of the Lord because he loved us. It is motive, Our motivation is gratitude. Not that we have to. 
not desire to earn any merit. You know, I have heard it said, and I actually believe it, that there's nothing that we can do to make God love us more. I mean, his love for us is so vast, so infinite. As the song said, you know, if, if every if the sky were a scroll and every man on earth a, a scribe, you know, it would drain the ocean dry to write the love of God. His love for us is just so vast that, that we can't comprehend it. And there's nothing we can do to make him love us more. No matter how hard we try, we're not going to make him love us more. But on the other hand, there's nothing that we can do to make him love us less. His love is not so not only infinite, it is complete. You know, it is like our own children, you know, when they misbehave, we don't love them less. But we correct them when they misbehave because we do love them. Because we do love them so much. And God is the same way with us. He corrects us because he does love us. And uh, one commentator said, Every believer is God's firstborn and so higher than the kings of the earth that he must therefore carry himself accordingly not to stain his royal blood. We are children of the king and we are to act like children of the king. Look at verse 2. With all lowliness and gentleness, with long-suffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Now, a walk before God will be marked by lowliness and gentleness, not with a desire to defend ourselves, not with a desire to push our own rights forward, and to advance our own agenda. You know, outside of Christianity, the word lowliness has a, a bad connotation, a bad association with it. It, uh, and in the minds of many, it still does. You know, if you're if you're not a believer, if you're not a Christian, but for a Christian, lowliness is a glorious virtue. It means that we can be happy and content without being in control and wanting to steer things our own way. And Paul talks about this in the book of Philippians uh, 2, 1 through 10. Let me turn there real quick. Um, he says, <clears throat> If therefore there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, let each of you regard one another as more important than himself. Do not merely look out for your own personal interest, but also for the interest of others. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men, and being found in appearance of a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient 
to the point of death, even death on the cross. Therefore also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So, we are to walk in, in lowliness, gentleness, long-suffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the, of the Spirit. You know, it's hard sometimes not to push our own agenda, isn't it? It's hard not to want to exert our own rights, particularly when others come against us uh, wrongly and accuse us falsely. But just as Jesus bears patiently with us in our imperfections, we need to and have to with one another. We need this so that the inevitable wrongs that occur between people and God's family will not work against God's purpose of bringing all things together in Jesus. And the fact that we have to endeavor <laughs> and that we have to suffer long is an indication that it's not always easy, is it? Sometimes we have to work at it. Sometimes, sometimes we have to almost force ourselves but we have to do it. Uh, Christendom divided Chrysostom. I never can't pronounce his name right. Anyway, define long-suffering as the spirit that has the power to take revenge but never does. It is a characteristic of a forgiving and generous heart. And endeavoring to keep the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. This humble, forgiving attitude toward others naturally fulfills the unity of the Spirit. And this spiritual unity is not necessarily a structural or a denominational unity. It's evident in the quick fellowship possible among Christians of different races, nationalities, languages, and economic uh, classes. Have you ever just met someone for the first time and had just almost a, an instant bond of unity? You just knew. They haven't even told you yet, but you just knew that they were a believer. You were of the same spirit and of the same mind. I've done this so many times. It's just a wonderful, wonderful feeling when you meet a new brother or, or sister and you are, are immediately of, of one mind and one, one spirit. It's not a, uh, a forced thing. It's not a structural thing. It is a spiritual thing. And, you know, uh, according to Spurgeon, we can understand unity of the spirit uh, better maybe by understanding what it's not. In a sermon on this text, uh, Spurgeon pointed out some things that the text does not say. It does not say to endeavor to maintain a unity 
of evil, the unity of superstition, the unity of spiritual tyranny. You know, we are to shun these things. It does not say endeavoring to keep your ecclesiastical arrangements for centralization. In other words, a structural unity. You know, we have to listen to our our spiritual leaders because they are our, our spiritual leaders, not because we want to, but because we have to. And it does not say, but it does say, you know, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit. <clears throat> Spurgeon goes on to say that he sees the various denominations, uh, movements, different divisions within the church as not being such a bad thing. He said because the more the church would be unified into a, a single structure here on earth with a, uh, a single head, very much like the Catholic Church, would lead to a, a political structure that would increase the power of the head of the church, very much like the Catholic Church. And the more power a, a person gets, the more corruption can, can creep in, as what happened in the Catholic Church. And someone wisely said that power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. Whereas having the church in smaller groups doesn't lend itself to su such a uh, amalgamation of power that you would have you know, if the church was totally united in, in one political uh, structure. Uh, hope I'm making myself clear on this. That doesn't mean that we, we have to be divided in spirit. We can be divided in the way that we worship. You know, some people are, are drawn to uh, a more exuberant type of worship, you know, a Pentecostal form of worship, if you will. Other people enjoy, you know, the, a more uh, high church form of worship, uh, a more, um, I can't think of the word I'm looking for, but, um, yeah, a very formal and yeah, ceremonial works. There's still another word I'm looking for. It'll come to me in a minute. Uh, liturgical, yes, that's the word I'm looking for, a more liturgical type of worship. And, you know, the Lord is in all of these. He's in all these types of worship, you know. And some people look for a more middle-of-the-road type of worship. You know, this is fine. You know, the early church... Uh, Say the church in Ephesus, for example, that you know we're reading the letter to, uh, they didn't have just one central meeting place in the city of Ephesus where all the Ephesian Christians came together, you know, every Sunday for worship. No, they they met in individual homes throughout the city. I have no idea. Nobody has any idea how many various houses there may have been, you know, that were housing the church. But yet they were all the church at Ephesus. 
and you know at our ministerial meetings uh, the various pastors and various denominations all over the city who when we come together we refer to our our gathering as uh, the pastors from the church at Princeton you know not not the not Calvary Chapel not first first Baptist or first Methodist or whatever you know but the church at Princeton we just happen to meet in different places because we want to be unified we want to push the unity of the church we want to push togetherness and even though we have different uh, differences on certain things such as maybe uh, you know our different views of eschatology uh, our differing views on how we baptize you know different things like that we never push our differences we always accentuate we always focus in on the similarities and our similarity our, our bond of unity is structured totally on the person of Jesus Christ and his finished work of salvation Spurgeon one more time he says we are confident that this unity is found in Jesus Christ by the spirit of God we want unity in the truth of God through the spirit of God let us seek after let's seek after this let us live near to Christ for this is the best way of promoting unity divisions in church never begin with those full of love for the Savior. And that is something really to think about for a minute. It is worth repeating. Divisions in churches never begin with those full of love of the Savior. If we are focused on Him, we are going to want to do His will. We're going to live out, want to live out His, His desires. We're going to want to live lives that are pleasing to Him and division that separates us is never going to be something that we want. Okay, and in the next sentence, Paul goes into a description of the unity of the church. There is one body, one spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. Here we have seven ones, the number of completeness. One body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. You know, the unity of the church was so important to Jesus that in his final prayer before he was uh, arrested and, and taken away to Pilate and then on to be crucified, <clears throat> he prayed for it three different times. In John 17 and 11, he said, Now I am no longer in the world, but these are in the world, and I come to you. Holy Father, keep them through your name, those whom you have given me, that they may be one as we are. 
and on down in verse 22, that they all may be one, as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they may also be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. And in verse 22 of chapter 17, And the glory which you gave me I have given them, that they may be one, just as we are one. And he wasn't just praying this prayer for his, his apostles. He started to say 12 apostles. Actually, at this time, there were only 11 left. But uh, he, he said in verse 20 of this chapter that he was praying this not just for his apostles, but for all those who would believe in his name. So this is for us. He desired, I'm going to say it again, he desired unity in the church so much that he prayed for it three times in his final prayer. <coughs> there is one body and one spirit. We have unity because of what we share in common. In Jesus, we share one body, one spirit, one hope of our calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism and one Father. Each of these common areas is greater than any potential difference. Now I want to look at these these ones. First, I'm not going to take them necessarily in order. <coughs> Excuse me. But I want to talk about, first, the, the one baptism. Some think that because Paul says there's one baptism, that the idea of the baptism of the Holy Spirit is... Uh, as a subsequent uh, experience is invalid. Here Paul is talking about water baptism. The baptism in water as a sign, a visible token, if you will, of God's common work in every believer. Now, baptism doesn't save us. But when we are baptized, we are confessing to the world that we believe in the saving work of Jesus Christ. And it is a sign that we are born again, born of the Spirit. <clears throat> so, And also he's emphasizing too that there's not separate baptisms, not a baptism for the Jew and a different baptism for the Gentile. Now, <clears throat> You know, he doesn't mention the mode of baptism. You know, some churches teach baptism by immersion only. You know, if you're a Baptist, I'm sure you've heard that. If you were, if you came out of the Baptist church, I'm sure you heard that. If you came out of the uh, Methodist church or the Episcopal church or one like that, you know, sprinkling. He doesn't say how to do it. He just says there is one one baptism. He doesn't say there is one mode of baptism. If you're, if you're baptized into the Lord, then you are baptized into the Lord. <clears throat> and so the concept of baptism of the Holy Spirit is a whole different uh, a whole different topic, and we won't go into that uh, right now. But we see also in the rest of these verses the uh, concept of the Trinity very plainly and very clearly. I heard... Uh, uh, teacher or somebody say one time, and I, I think it's probably true, that most Christians, if asked to explain the Trinity, uh, would come up with something that 
is very close, if not total, uh, heresy. Simply because we don't understand the Trinity. And I think we don't understand the Trinity because our minds are just not capable of fully, totally understanding the Trinity. I can't understand the Trinity any more than I can understand how Jesus could be fully God and fully man. No, nobody is going to be able to explain that to me fully well until I get to heaven, and then I will understand it. You know, I keep hearing all these different analogies of, of the Trinity. You know, people trying to explain it various ways, you know, like an egg. You know, people say the Trinity is like an egg. You know, you have the shell, you have the yolk, and you have the, the white, and, but it's all an egg. Well, <clears throat> that's modalism. Uh, I'm sorry, that's not modalism. That is partialism. God is partially uh, a yoke, partially the white, and partially the, uh, the shell. No, it, it doesn't work that way. He is completely the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. I've heard people try to explain it as water. You know, water can be liquid. You know, it can be steam. Or it can be ice. It can be three different forms. That's modalism. They say, well, God is sometimes the Father, sometimes he's the Son, sometimes he's the Holy Spirit. Uh, no, God is always the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. I've also heard people try to say he's like the Son. You know, the Son is the star, the Son generates heat, and the Son gives light. Well, it does all those things, but <clears throat> that's more like Arianism. And Arius was a uh, second, I believe, second century heretic who said that the the Son and the Holy Spirit were creations, the first creation of God the Father. That's a heresy that's alive today in in the work of the Jehovah's Witnesses. They say pretty much the same thing. But <clears throat> no, God is the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. All the time, always. And they're always one. We serve one God, not three. How do we know that? Well, Jesus said, the Father and I are one. You remember what I just read from chapter 17? Three times in his prayer, he mentioned he and the Father are one. And <clears throat> he told Thomas, remember, uh, in the book of John, he said, uh, well, I think it was Thomas. Anyway, he said, you know, the disciple, disciple said to him, show us the Father and, and it'll be sufficient for us. And Jesus said, you know, if you've seen me, you have seen the Father. Now, we want to separate the Son and the Father, but you can't. They are one. Jesus said that you know, if you receive him into your life, then we receive him and the Father. He said the Father and I will, the Father and I, both of them, you know, will make our abode with him. How does he make our abode with us? Through the Holy Spirit. Not, not three gods, one God. And also, 
you know, from Isaiah chapter 9, a very familiar verse that's read every Christmas. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And not only are Jesus and the Father one, Jesus and the Holy Spirit are one. How's that work? Well, you know, in the book of John, it begins. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Jesus said in John six sixty three. It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I speak to you are spirit, and they are life. So Jesus is the Word of God incarnate. The Word is spirit, and the Word brings life. And in Ephesians, in the same book, or in chapter 6, <clears throat> Paul is talking about taking on the whole armor of God, says, Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Now, so, Jesus and the Spirit are, are one and united. How can they be united and be separate? I don't know. Some things you just have to say, yeah, that's the way it is. Just like Jesus being total 100% God and 100% man. That's just the way that it is. I can't explain it. I don't. I don't think I like. I said I don't think I'll ever fully understand it. But I can't accept it. I can't accept that God is one God manifest in three persons. And I can't accept the unity of these three these three persons. And finally, he, he concludes by saying that he is through all and in all. Paul said, but you are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if indeed the spirit of God dwells in you. Now, if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, he is not his. <clears throat> so if we have the spirit of Christ, we have God dwelling in us not just the Holy Spirit we have God dwelling within us <clears throat> and because God dwells within us we should have a burning desire in our heart to love him and to love one another you know we're told that how can we say that we love God and hate our brother If we can't love our brother whom we see, how can we say we love God whom we haven't seen? <clears throat> if we love God, we will love our brother. It's just going to come naturally. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. And thank you for letting us know what you desire of us. That you desire, us, desire of us to be of one mind of one heart, that our one heart and one mind would be 
just set on the purpose of loving you and serving you and living the way that you want us to. Bind us together, Lord, in love for you and in love for one another and with the desire, Lord, to go out and, and to demonstrate our love to the lost and dying world. In Jesus' name, amen.